fellow fiends. Welcome to another terrifying and delectable episode of Nightmare on Film Street. The horror podcast with zero credibility, but all of the blood, ghouls, and gore. Your puny heart can handle. <laughs> Let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare on Film Street. I'm Kim. I'm John. And this week, we are talking Academy Award winning horror. We're talking two of horror's most represented films at the Oscars. With 1973's The Exorcist and 1991's Silence of the Lambs. Two classics that I'm sure you've been wanting us to talk about for a while, and we are finally covering on the podcast. Actually, fun fact. Oh, I'm so glad you're saying this. (laughs) um, This was supposed to be our very first episode of Nightmare on Film Street. Before we launched, uh, back in 2016, we recorded a bunch of episodes on our original recording device, which was not a crazy microphone setup. It was just my iPhone. We would sit in the middle of the living room with my iPhone, and we banged out a bunch of episodes. And this one was so horrible. It got instantly deleted. It never saw the light of day. It was never uploaded. Nobody ever heard it but us. And I think we only listened to about 20 minutes before we were like, oh my God, we can never have a podcast. We're awful. Who would want to listen to us? <laughs> Let's try again. The and then worst... we launched two weeks later. <laughs> right. Uh, the, worst, the worst part about that is that we had recorded it once. We recorded it with just the microphone built into the laptop and it sounded atrocious. And then we did it again. And you can like you could just hear the disdain in our voice for having to say the same things twice. Uh, and it, it it also but disappeared. I, from I think existence. that really that really helped us in developing kind of our tone as a podcast because we're very adamant about being an organic conversation. I wonder if it's and all because of that moment. I think so because I don't like to be redundant and I don't like to have redundant conversations. Like the, the, the things we talk about on this podcast are real conversations between you and I. Yeah. When we see a new movie and we talk about it, we don't talk about it beforehand. We don't talk about what we're going to talk about. And I mean, sometimes we have episodes that uh, they get a little over emotional or fall a little <laughs> flat, but you know, it's real conversation. And that's, yeah. I think the whole point of what Nightmare on Film Street is. And uh, I think it's fun out of that episode because it felt so rehearsed (laughs) that was the biggest problem and i think that's uh, sometimes an issue we have with movies that we absolutely love like we have already to each other said all the things we need to say about like nightmare before christmas Mm -hmm. or or poltergeist which is why it's gonna be a very very long time i think before we record a poltergeist episode we should just start right now we're not allowed to watch poltergeist for like another two Two years. years yeah and then we can dive back into it yeah, because maybe if we miss up, we'll be like, oh, I forgot about this scene, and I forgot about this scene. That's going to be tough. That movie is just burned into my brain yeah. now. Because it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. But before we get into this week's episode, and don't worry, this one is a good, nice, long episode. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, what's keeping you creepy this week, John? Well, speaking of old episodes of the podcast, uh, we have recently 
archived a bunch of those episodes. We've taken them out of the main feed on iTunes and Spotify. They will be available for download on Patreon at patreon.com slash nightmareonfilmstreet. If you want to hear those really uh, rough beginnings where we were just figuring this whole thing out, Uh, or if you want to hear all the old Drive Home from the Drive-In reviews of movies from Get Out to The Shape of Water. Yeah, and this is in part two because... um... We're going into our third year as a podcast and our audio files are taking up a lot of room. So we have to make space for the new content that we put out every other week. Um, And so we've chosen to archive some of the back episodes, but we will make them available to download, as John said, on Patreon. Yeah. I also just think that some of those older ones aren't... uh, Piece of crap. (laughs) Yeah. They're they're just not the greatest introduction into into Nightmare on Film Street because, yeah, we... I feel like uh, we're a lot... I was going to say more well-spoken, but we are not. Oh, we are, no, we are not (laughs) more well-spoken. We are not well-spokener. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Also, recently, uh, Kim found out that I had never seen The Wicker Man. And not just the 2006 Nicolas Cage Wicker Man. I'd also never seen the original 1973, 1975 Wicker Man with Christopher Lee. uh, And she made me watch both of them. Back to back. It was so funny. He had no idea like half the scenes in the Nicolas Cage version. I'm a new man now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you knew the B scene. That's a Yeah, I knew the B scene. From GIFs alone, probably. Yep. Um, but I think I've seen that scene. I'm regretting YouTube. that I did not have Instagram or Facebook Live on, on <laughs> your face when you saw <laughs> Nicolas Cage in that bear suit punching girls in the face I don't he understand. karate kicked Lily Sobieski you know what's funny he karate kicks a lot of people in this movie <laughs> and occasionally he'll just walk into a room stare at somebody and then after like a long beat punch and then walk out I'm sure somebody has mentioned that to me before or it's been referenced in my presence and I, I've just never clued into it this movie was uh very strange like absurd the original is strange too though it's it's like a folk musical oh yeah the, the it's really weird you know okay you know what really could have improved the 2006 wicker man is if they included that that naked nighttime dance sequence from the original but with Nicolas Cage <laughs> like, <laughs> Nicolas Cage is running around the hotel buck naked just singing to the walls that's a weird moment in that movie Man, the, the original is so strange. It's it's hard to watch because um, you, you know everything about it. Like, you know the big reveal. You're watching the puzzle sort of form mm-hmm. to get to that point. And it does a great job. I think it does a really good job of, of hiding from you what's going to happen. But the biggest problem for a modern audience and for a guy like me, I guess, is that uh, you know he's not going to make it out. A 1973 audience would not have assumed that he's going into that Wicker Man and some and no one's like riding in at the the 11th hour to to, save to stop yeah. everything. Yeah, because he's a cop too, right? Like you could have just as easily have assumed that uh, his cop buddies are gonna come in on a boat and stop everything and everything's gonna and, you know they're all gonna go to jail and ooh that was a close one. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It seems like a really long time to just be this bleak movie, but it's so good for that reason. Yeah, I really liked it a lot. Not so much the Nicholas Cage. <laughs> Ooh, boy. And I went into that one seriously, too. I was like, you know what? No, maybe it's good. Maybe everybody just saw it and laughed at it. I'm going to watch this 
uh, like the audience back in 2006 watched it. I'm going to go in, quote unquote, blind. And I'm just going to accept it for what it is. And it lost me at like five minutes. <laughs> they kept calling back to that single car accident. The first time so they do it, it's many great times. though. Where he's like on the boat and he sees the girl and then like on the boat, a train hits her and stuff. I thought that was awesome. No, some of the dream stuff was cool, but the dialogue, oh. <laughs> yeah, it, it deserved an episode... Uh, on its own, we should we should have we should have lived it. We'll we'll do that from now on. If there's something that like, oh my god, I can't believe you haven't seen this. We'll at the very least check in every like five ten minutes. Like, okay, how are you feeling about it? What's going on? <laughs> also, too, when this episode drops, Happy Death Day to You is hitting theaters. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, we are seeing it. It's in theaters right now. Uh, yeah. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody! Oh yeah, Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, but we will have a bonus episode recorded for patrons over at patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. We'll also have a review hitting the website. So there will be some happy death day to you coverage from Nightmare on Film Street. And we won't get a chance to talk to you guys about it until the next episode because obviously we have not seen it yet. Yeah, I'm excited to see it though. It looks weird. I've been trying not to watch the trailers too much. It's been kind of hard because they've been playing in movies that we've gone to. Yeah. 2019, Kim, it's going to be the year where you keep your eyes closed during the, the trailers. <laughs> uh, I did not unfortunately spare myself from that new Pet Cemetery trailer. I got the spoilers from that. I didn't see that one. It was impossible not to get them. They were I all s- over Twitter. It did get spoiled for me. Uh, I have not watched the trailer. I wrote the news post on it. <laughs> I watched half the trailer because I knew it was spoily. And I, I wrote the news post just watching half the trailer. And I was like, ha ha, dodge that bullet. And then Twitter made it a fucking moment. Mm. And I was like, whoa. I'm not going to lie. I uh, I did not see that that trailer. I did not actually read a tweet where somebody ruined it for me. But knowing that there is some surprise. Don't you spoil it with your That's, spoiler I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to be very good about it. Because if you haven't been spoiled, I don't want to spoil it for you. I'll just say that based on... Uh, the reaction to that trailer and an older piece of media regarding that new movie, I figured it out myself. And I'm like, oh, this has to be what everybody's talking about. Kim confirmed it. Uh, if it hasn't been spoiled for you, I hope I haven't made you curious. I don't I don't know. Try to stay unspoiled, everybody. Yeah, I'm we- like, I'm not going to pass any judgment. I don't have any crazy nostalgia with the film, so I'm not like overprotective of it. Yeah. But also, too, like we get so angry when things are shot for shot or things are too close to the original and they don't take any creative liberties. And then if something takes too big a creative liberty, we get mad. So I'm just like, I'm not going to have any yeah. opinion. I'm just going to wait and let the movie wash over me. I think exactly. the tone of it looks really eerie and oh, really yeah. creepy. And I'm still so excited for it. Yeah, based on this new revelation, I don't think it's going to hurt the movie. I don't understand why everybody was so up in arms about it. Yeah, I, I'm interested I honestly... to see why they made the change, because it's got to have something to do with the story, so I'm interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, that'll be great. Mm-hmm. One last thing before we go, I have the greatest, uh, I have the great honor of reading out to you the winner for best supporting role in an indie horror podcast. <laughs> and the winner is... Oh my God, ladies and gentlemen, this is unheard of. It's unprecedented. It's the first ever six-way tie between Violet, Richard, Edward, David, Simon, and Brian. Congratulations, everyone. And thank you so much for your support. They are our most recent patrons. So again, thank you so much, Violet, Richard, Edward, David, Simon, and Brian. Uh, we literally could not do this show without you. Yeah, if you head to patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street, there's a ton of back episodes, including a bonus episode for this week's episode. Which... Oh, even more back episodes now. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll be adding the archives soon. And there's a whole bunch of games. There's Drive Home from the Drive-Ins. And uh, for some of you in the higher tiers, there's merch and swag in there. Uh, so check it out. 
That's enough business though. Let's get on with it. Let's go to the, it's award season. Let's go to them. (laughs) (laughs) That's a segue and a half. Let's talk about William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. (gasps) The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. So The Exorcist from 1973, directed by William Freakin, The Exorcist is currently sitting at an 8 out of 10 on IMDb, 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, 4 out of 4 from Roger Ebert, 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd, and it won Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. I believe it was nominated for a shit ton more, but I didn't write that down. Uh, I think, I, I know for a fact it was nominated for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress. Uh, best director, best picture, but uh... yeah, apparently there was some controversy too around um, Linda Blair being nominated for best supporting actress or best actress. Best, she best. got best supporting. Ellen Bernstein got uh, best actress <clears throat> uh, because it came out like during the nomination period that another actress did a lot of the physical stuff, yeah. uh, like the the voices of Pazuzu and whatever, and um, that would have disqualified her but mm. because they'd already come out with the nominations they never like revoke a nomination got it but it might have factored in her not winning it which uh, for what i understand is is a hundred percent true i never really realized it was because of the academy award thing i thought the secrecy behind it because yeah she's uncredited she got paid but i always thought it's because they wanted to they wanted audiences to believe that they had a little girl doing all of those horrible things which i get that for for marketing's sake but when you you watch, could just say that. When you watch the movie, you know they're not going to be having this girl saying these vulgar things. And there's there's moments where there's action that's vulgar and you can tell it's like an adult doing them mm-hmm. in the Reagan outfit. So by today's standards, you can kind of see the seams. But I mean, it's just, you would know. You would just know in your head that like they're not going to have this girl saying these things. And I mean, I guess they could have her speaking Latin or whatever it was. <laughs> What if they just, oh man, it's going to be so great when we have that Photoshop technology where we can just like have a 40 second clip of somebody's speech and we can make them say whatever they want. No, see, that's an awful kind of technology because somebody's going to put some words in Donald Trump's mouth and then somebody's going to blow the America up. The America. Yeah. Including this part of the America, the North part. (laughs) I mean, I'm not really worried about that technology because- I watched a show on Netflix and it really scared me. (laughs) Okay. 
Tell me more about this show. No, like no, they, really, really short sidetrack. Tell me about this show. They were just animating faces and using their voices and stuff. Like they were, they were using Barack Obama and they were having him say really weird stuff, and it looked pretty legit. It was really scary. Yeah, I mean, like, the, the technology exists now that you could convince people to do that kind of stuff, but it's no big deal. It is, however, gonna be a godsend when it comes to ADR in film. Yeah, that's true. But then there's going to be all kinds of weird rights in terms of, like, actors' likeness and stuff. And, like, Bruce Willis is never going to show up for a day of work. <laughs> <laughs> we all saw Glass. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's there's no way that he was in half the scenes that his body double was in. Um, one thing I always find when we, when we sit down to watch this is I never remember how long of a film it is. I'm sure... Most of you, when you're rewatching it, are rewatching the director's cut version. I think that's probably the only version I've seen. It's the only version I've ever seen, too. Yeah. That 1999, 2000 digitally remastered thing. Yeah, and William Friedkin, it's his preferred version. It's the writer's preferred version, obviously, because it's more intact. It's got more character development and whatever. Yeah. So that's the version I always end up watching. Plus, it's the version that we own. What are, what are the big differences between the two, other than... The spider walk scene. Uh, in I, my mind, that's like the, it's like, oh, it's got some scarier stuff like r- with Reagan. Yeah, I think a lot of the Pazuzu stuff is cut out, like the um, the subliminal stuff. Yeah, I remember some sort of featurette saying that the, the second one you see when she's in the kitchen isn't there. Like, why was that cut out? Yeah, but when I whenever I go into watching it, because this film is so ingrained in your memory, like I knew about... Um, the Exorcist before I ever saw it. And I mm-hmm. think that that comes with any of these really iconic horror films when you are born after they existed. Mm-hmm. They become more public knowledge than anything like Psycho and anything like that. You The character is more notorious than the film. Yeah. So in my head, when I think of The Exorcist, I only think of The Exorcism. But this movie is so much more than that. Like Father Mar- Father Marin and Father Karras don't even meet each other until like an hour and 40 minutes into the film. Oh, I think it's even more than that. Which is insane. There's so much more to this film and exploring like how the medical world deals with a demon possession, yeah. what they treat it like and and how they deal with like the mental health community in that age. Like I think that's such an interesting takeaway from this movie is that seeing a psychiatrist has more stigma than seeing a priest in 1973. <laughs> that's crazy. That's a really good point. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's that's like a big thing I want to talk about, but um it is really interesting to watch that movie ha- with it having existed for so many years before you ever got to it because it invaded pop culture. Uh, and that first viewing is just like checking boxes. Like, okay, there we go. She turned her head around. Oh, there's the, there's the piece. Levitation. Soup. Yeah, like all <laughs> of the stuff that you hear about or you see spoofed and satirized in other pieces of pop culture, that's what you're looking for. You're just, you're just looking for the source material, essentially. Yeah, like I think I saw a scary movie par- parodying the Exorcist before I saw The Exorcist. Yeah. So I, I was watching James Woods play. Like simultaneously spoofing this and the Amityville Horror at the same time? Yeah, I remember being like, where are the flies in this movie? And yeah. then it wasn't until I was older that I learned like, oh, that is the Amityville Horror. Like that is a really weird way to discover horror films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like with the internet now, that's how everybody's discovering old horror films. Who's it's younger? How it's, it's how you're discovering everything, right? Yeah, it's all spoiled for you first. It's nuts. But it isn't until like that second or third viewing where you really pay attention to it that you realize like how perfect of a film it is. It's 
so goddamn good like so good and- well because I, I do want to say this film is so much more than the sum of its scares a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of what it's chucked up to being is the head turn the, the crab crawl the levitation the pea soup but they they come and they go and they're terrifying when you watch them because reagan is utterly terrifying but there's like so much more emotional depth to this movie and every character has this like weight and struggle that you're just like i'm watching father Marin when reagan turns her head around i'm watching ellen bernstein on the floor when she when she's stabbing herself with the cross i'm not watching reagan yeah, yeah and you have so to get to a point where you're watching the movie and you're not watching reagan reagan is just this like cannonball that's being thrown through the scene and you're watching how it ripples in all these people yeah i take it that's cool it's not about the head turning guys and i, I, I think all of <laughs> even those... though that's dope Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think all of those scares and everything, uh, none, none of it pays off nearly as well if you don't have that huge chunk, like half of the movie where we're surrounded by doctors. Mm-hmm. I think that really solidifies this. Like, it, it, it makes you believe that everything you're going to see in the end of the movie is necessary and possible, it, which is really interesting because you open in Iraq. And we, so, you know, visually, you have this moment with Father Marin where demons exist and like although you may not see them there is something ominous yeah exists. right and we know because the music is so fucking loud <laughs> and and, and o- dogs, dogs would are only... barking. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh yeah so you, you you are it's established moment one that demons exist and then we we tuck that aside for a little bit it's just like oh yeah cool just keep that in mind we're gonna come back to that later Mm -hmm. and then like a documentary we tear apart every possible solution even though the audience sitting down every single audience even the very first audience that saw it we know this girl is possessed that's what we're here to see (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. but what what i think it really does is it tries to make you forget that it's a movie in a way like if this were real like if you were trying to comfort yourself in the theater you'd say well this isn't real it's just a scary movie no big deal nothing to be worried about but like when you take everything in your own world your own real life that you would turn to if you had this this problem they have no solution for it they can't solve it they can't explain it and now we turn to a supernatural side and the only answers lie in this this unknown realm mm-hmm. i think it's brilliant i think it makes the ending way scarier than it even needs to be yeah well in the horror for the first half of the film is is empathizing with this mother who's she's a working mom she's a single mom she doesn't have a lot of time there in an unfamiliar city and she has a very sick daughter who has not been diagnosed so the, all of the tension and all of the stress that you have as a viewer is like through her eyes mm-hmm. when she's visiting with the doctor and he's prescribing her like a page of Ritalin or he's saying that she has nerve disorder or that she's got a tumor on her temporal lobe like mm-hmm. every time they say something to her and she gets more like she's getting more weak and weak and weak almost the same way reagan is yeah yeah it's it's so interesting to watch this movie and the terror that is just derived from whether or not it's actually a demon possession just this mom with this really sick girl mm-hmm. and then we've also got father Karras, who's taking care of a really sick mother as well um i find his story i don't know if i want to say way more interesting but he is always who I'm paying attention to in this movie, which is probably a good thing. It is his movie in t- to a degree. Is it? I think so. Okay, <laughs> you want to nail this down right now? Who's the exorcist? See, that's my argument is that 
at different stages of, the, of this movie, it's somebody different. It starts out as mom. Okay. And then it's the doctors. Yep. I mean, I guess it's always kind of mom through the doctors. And then it's Father Karras. And then it's Father Marin. And then it's Father Karras again. Yeah, that's, that's I think a really that's cool what, way of looking at it. It's about the exorcist. Who who represents the exorcist? Because there's so much... If, if this movie didn't follow... Um, so much of the medical side and the the mother daughter relationship, I would say, yeah, totally, it's the Exorcist at the end. But there's so much of this movie is dedicated to more than that. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, from a story writing perspective, I think the arc of the film is Father Karras's. Like, yeah, we have we have Reagan, who's a normal girl. We see that she, you know, she she loves these beautiful horses. Um, sorry, I hate that scene. I don't know why I hate that yeah. scene. Just like, yeah, mom, you sh- oh, you should have seen. They were so beautiful. <laughs> I think, I think it was a gilding. Uh, oh, and it was beautiful. Gray. <laughs> like, oh, it goes on for so long. But I mean, she's a girl. Like, like not a girl. I mean, she's. <laughs> she goes downstairs and makes a clay of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, she's got tons of little clays. <laughs> she's made a little turtle and then this, and then this beautiful <laughs> <laughs> and they let me ride it. Oh, goes on forever. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, sure. And then she gets possessed, and at the end of it, she's fine. But uh, like Father Karis has a deeper arc, I guess, a more interesting arc, <laughs> which is fucked, right? Like, how is it more interesting than being possessed by the fucking <laughs> devil? <laughs> but yeah, he's he's at a point in his life where he's having this serious crisis of faith. He's he's supposed to be the person that you turn to when you're having a crisis in your faith. He's supposed to be a pillar of strength and he's lost it all. And it's, this is before his mother dies, which is great. Um, <laughs> well, it would just, it would just be too convenient if his mom died and he was like, I'm sad. I don't believe in God anymore. <laughs> but like, he's really in like a deep rut in his own life. Uh, and then it gets worse because his mother dies and like he's really beating himself up for it because he gives so much of himself to his church and he gets nothing back from it. The guy's basically living in a closet. Yeah, and I love how you get quiet glimpses of how much more this guy's life could have been because you, yeah. you can tell he was a boxer. You can tell he's dedicated. Well, he was also, um, his fucking uncle likes to point out to him, too, like, hey, you know, if you were a big famous psychologist, we'd be able to put your mother in a nicer place. But no, you had to become a priest. Right? Like a man of the Lord. <laughs> what an ass. <laughs> and, and it's the other way around, from what I understand. He was a priest, and they put him into Harvard Medical School or whatever. Um, and yeah, so, like, there there is tons of opportunities avenues in his life where he could have been more than what he is but he's he's chosen to stick with this because of his faith and because of that he feels as though he's lost out on so much and i guess he's he's rudderless right like he's looking for his purpose and unfortunately he finds that in becoming a martyr for this girl (laughs) i guess maybe martyr is the wrong word but no i think that's yeah yeah all right also i just want to say uh real quick thing if he takes this demon into his, his, his body and uh, seeing Reagan affirms to him that God is real, right? And in his final moments, he asks God for forgiveness because Catholics are fucked and it's all about asking for forgiveness about everything. It's just shame and guilt. Uh, and he, he asks to be absolved of all of his sins. Like, is that 11th hour turnaround in your faith? a good thing like don't don't they constantly say that i'm pretty sure if anybody practices the 10 second rule it's catholicism 
But it's like faith is supposed to being is is supposed to be about not needing proof. You're supposed to just have faith against all odds. But he needs to literally see it for himself before he can have his faith again. I just think that's maybe against the the Christian know-how, whatever. Yeah, but I think that's your assumption and what that character's motivation is. Maybe he's just doing it to be a good human being. This girl has her life ahead of her. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, he's I, this sad-ass priest. Yeah, no, I, I do think that Also, he, he might be the weakest person in the room at that point, and the demon has to jump into him. I think he's the only person in the room at that point. Compared to Reagan, though. Good point. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely do think that it's it's a... Um, he's got really good intentions in taking the demon from her, because, yeah, she's just a child. But I just think it's interesting that, like, he loses his faith, and he has to... It isn't until he has to, he has to see it for himself with his own eyes that he gets it back, which is okay. Whatever, it's fine. How do you know he gets his faith back, though? There's no moment of that. Uh, well, I, I I guess maybe I'm just reading a little too much into his priest buddy who is giving him his final rites. See, I really like that because how those hands are moving is way fucking possessed. I think he is possessed up until he's dead, dead. Oh, you think just like him squeezing on his hands? Is possessed. He's doing it one finger at a time like a creep. Okay. Like a dying fucking creep. You don't think it was just an actor's choice? Like, no, okay. I think he's dead. Or I think he's... You think he's still possessed? Yeah, I think he's Pazuzu at the bottom of the stairs. I love that... Um, yeah, I can't remember the third father's name, but he was actually a real priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he kind of just like found his way into acting. But he's so genuine. Yeah. <laughs> and I love his final scene at the very end of the movie, which we'll get to, I'm sure. But yeah, he's just like, I just like him. You know, when you just see somebody, you're like, you're just an honest person. Maybe that's because he's actually a priest. So. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he seems great. He's He seems like he's he's fun at parties. Yeah. And he's and a he, real good friend. Yeah. And he he's the one that connects Chris McNeil with Father Karras. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of has a part in this movie, which I like, which is cool. Even the director plays a bigger role in this movie. And when you're first watching it, you're like, oh, they're doing some really interesting character development. Makes sense because this is based off a book. All of the characters would be more fleshed out in a book. But but they all kind of have a a cog in the big wheel of Reagan's possession. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so going back to the beginning of the movie. Um, Take us back, John. Yeah, let's, let's paint a picture. Dial it, was, it down. 1973. Slow us all. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> it was a hip new age in Washington, D.C., where we were in town to film a movie. And there were beautiful horses <laughs> <laughs> just littering the streets. You could you could walk up to them and pet them and ride them all you wanted. Yep. Just beautiful horses as far as the eye could see. Um, <laughs> the problem is every time I say that, I lose my train of thought. What, what's your point? <laughs> I don't remember. So, uh, pretty early on, would you, would you say that Reagan is possessed before the movie even starts? No. Okay. Should I back that up? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't have, uh, my biggest takeaways are, uh, there's only a few conversations we have with. Uh, Linda Blair and Ellen Bernstein before we go to the first doctor's appointment where Mm -hmm. she's definitely being possessed or being weakened or like I would say that the first doctor's appointment is the the kickstart of it all okay and probably only because it's a doctor's appointment you think I think it's in there at that point and it's getting restless because blood pressure and all that stuff like maybe there's going to be some physical signs maybe it's not happy about that okay but 
one thing I took away watching this time that I don't know if I've ever noticed is that night before her birthday or the a uh, couple days before her birthday, mm. Chris is in Reagan's room and they're they're planning what they're going to do for her birthday. Yeah. And at some point, the conversation changes to if mom is going to marry Burke. Mm. Yes. And Reagan says, well, I heard differently. And that scene, that moment makes me think that maybe Captain Howdy has been telling her negative things about mom and like maybe that mom's going to leave her or mom's going to get married again and she's going to be less important important, or she's not the person mom loves most. Like, yeah. It's because, been feeding her lies and trying to make her feel like she's all alone. Yeah, because most often, and, and I don't know if it's in the book, um, unfortunately I don't remember, that normally a demon has to weaken the person down. So before they are physically possessed, there's a lot of external stuff, which is like why I think the bed was shaking at first. Like I don't think it's inside her at that point when the bed's first shaking. Got it. Because she wants it to stop. Yeah. So... Yeah, I just point. think there's some little moments where you're like, oh, I think somebody's talking in her ear. That's a cool idea. Yeah. That's a really cool idea. I think, uh, would would you be able, would you agree that we could pinpoint down the moment that uh, the, that demon shows up? See, in my, in my mind at least, she's possessed when she uses that Ouija board. And not with mom, because she uses it. Uh, off camera before the movie starts mm-hmm. um, mom says like do you know how to use it like oh yeah it's no problem you just uh, you just bring the planchette around you just ask a question she's like well you're not supposed to do it by yourself she's like no nah, I did it by myself already it's no big deal boom possessed you don't fuck around with those boards <laughs> okay so you think she's possessed the whole time and then it's just like a, like a growing thing well, I mean, I did until you started bringing up your fantastic points, which I think is is perfect. I think maybe the the Ouija board is what invites it into the house, uh, and then yeah, we have like this poltergeisty demon thing um, that is rattling the cages until people are have their backs against the wall and they're more susceptible for it, and then it jumps into Reagan. Mm-hmm. It, it might have taken mom if mom was uh, more weak willed. Because it definitely yeah, and it's attacks in the attic her and in the stuff. attic. There's yeah. sounds in the attic. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, I forgot about those damn Mises. As soon as the movie starts, we hear shit in the attic, right? We know there's no rats. That guy wouldn't allow rats in the house. He said it was clean. I trust him. <laughs> I trust him, too. You think those are people that like uh, live in the D.C. area and she's like hired on? Or do you think they've been with her for years? I don't know, because they do drive her to the airport. Yeah, but he does seem like fed up with her already. <laughs> He's like, I'll, yeah, and like, I'll go get some rat traps. Like, the stores aren't open yet. It's fine. I'll go. <laughs> Just sitting in the parking lot? Yeah. Newspaper, coffee. Fuck House full of women. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, uh, yeah. Possession. <laughs> um, what do you make... If, if, I, just, I, I think I'm just going to do this episode backwards. What do you make of the necklace in Iraq? Or the pendant in Iraq. Because that is 100% Father Karras' medallion on his necklace, right? Because when they, they're taking those uh, pieces out from uh, from inside that little cavern that they find in Iraq, they have all of these little tiny statues. Like we have the tiny little, we'll call it the Pazuzu statue. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, this is really interesting. This is from a completely different era, though. And they find that so strange. Like, this is... 20 bc or whatever year yeah, right yeah, yeah. and and this like we're not 100 percent sure but it's it's not that same era whatsoever it's totally the the medallion that father karis is wearing is Which, it i i think so okay i don't know if i I've am ever... so 
glad you asked that question because I don't think I ever noticed it until this viewing and I didn't want to sound like an idiot. Okay, because like, I don't even, are you sure there's a medallion? Yeah, 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 they find this little, this little, uh, little think, piece. So my problem is whenever we have the Iraq scene, every time we watch this movie, there's always like at least a year or two in between watching it. So I'm like, oh yeah, this starts in Iraq. <laughs> yeah. Every single time. And then watching it, I'm so stressed out because Father Marin is so goddamn old, <laughs> he should not be in that desert. <laughs> and I know Max von Sydow was like 44 when this movie was made, which is like completely unfathomable. So so we're just going to like glaze right over that because like my brain can't comprehend it. It's that. insane. I was looking at comparison photos the other day on Google and I like threw my phone across the room. <laughs> they did such a good job with that makeup. Yeah, Apparently well, it's just I like liquid nominated. latex, yeah. which is fucking crazy. Like, and just brilliant acting. He yeah, looks like his, an old man. Like his back hunch and like how he's like I wanted to get that poor man a damp cold towel. No, I believe shade. I believe the tweet you put out was that <laughs> you wanted to get that man a nest tea plunge. I didn't want to say it again. I thought that would be like double dipping, but thank you for double dipping for me. It was well worth it. It was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so the whole scene I'm just watching um, Father Marin, because I'm so worried he's gonna have a fucking heart attack at the beginning of the film. And I'm yeah. like, you have to save Reagan. You gotta make it out of the desert. You know, this time around, I thought he went directly from Iraq to the exorcism, to be perfectly honest, because of how frail he looks. And also, they're like, oh, do you have to go? You're doing such good work here. And he's like, I'm sorry, I'm I'm needed. Maybe elsewhere. he just knew. That's what I'm saying. I think he just he went to the the Catholic convent. Wherever he's in the woods, just walking around. I think around he got a premonition with the dogs barking and stuff. Like I think he knew evil was on the move. Yeah, and he just he goes where he's needed. Follows Captain Hattie across the planet. But this is why I also think it's super important in uh, that that nightmare sequence to end all nightmare sequences. We see the medallion. You fucking love that nightmare. It sequence. is the greatest nightmare ever put on film. Like next to like uh, like dress to kill or something. Like they have. It, it's a real-to-life nightmare. And, you know, unfortunately, there were... I had a nightmare last night. It was about a crab living in the bathroom. <laughs> you woke me up and told me about that. You're like, there was a crab, and I would feed him chips. <laughs> All right, talk about your dream sequence. Yeah, it's great. Uh, but, like, unfortunately, we have a dog, and she hates other dogs oh. on TV. So as soon as she saw some dogs, she just started barking, and you couldn't hear really quietly Father Karras, like, you... <laughs> just whimpering in his sleep i don't honestly i don't know that i ever noticed it until we saw this movie in the theater last year um seeing this movie in the theater was probably the greatest thing ever oh yeah purely for that medical x-ray scene yeah just like a fucking white ass screen just and the mri images coming up picture it in your mind people. yeah well, i'm bringing you there <laughs> uncanny I'm painting it. it's 1973 we're in washington dc there's beautiful and doctors and, i'm sorry we do need to talk about the medallion uh, that i'm not done talking about oh You're sure right, we do sure we do yeah well it's in that scene uh, we see it falling in the nightmare and it hits the ground and that's where the scream comes and when he wakes up and we're transitioning why is mom taking scene. the subway what is the metaphorical significance? she's dying she dies while he's like, that's him having a dream. Not necessarily a premonition, but he's literally, she died while he was at home asleep. Oh. And that, and, you know, if, if we want to take the demon at its word, even though it's a liar, we know it's a liar. <laughs> um, I uh, like the demon. The demon's got good sass. Like when she's the opening the drawer sass. and stuff and like, oh, that would be too vulgar a display of power. And you're like, 
Pazuzu. The, honestly, my, some sassy. my first reaction when I, first, when I heard that this time was like, shit, does Pantera take all of their album names from The Exorcist? And so I really started paying attention. I'm just like, <laughs> does she say the Great Southern Trend Kill anywhere in this movie? Uh, and sorry, this that, is not a reference for you, but uh, that's fine. What? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think that's that scene is it's her dying. And if we're to take the demon at its word, um, she is going down into hell, mm. which I highly doubt. She seems like the nicest old lady. She just she just wants her Yimmy to have a happy life and listen to the radio. You sound all like day. Borat. But yeah, he's wearing the medallion at the end of the movie, and we see it. I don't know, John. I really don't know. I could be wrong, and it is something that I've only now. I need into. to rewatch The Exorcist. I mean, we could rewatch The Exorcist. At least the opening scene. It's doable. I don't know. I'm just saying there is a lot of like uh, things fated to happen, and like people falling into place because like Father Karras is definitely supposed to be there, and I think that Medallion is sort of fading. What's you think going it's like a time loop? I don't know. <laughs> that'd be, oh, that'd be, like not a, that is the only way this movie could be better for me. Not a literal time loop, but yeah. like a metaphorical time loop. Uh, like the maybe. demon is back in Iraq and it's in oh, maybe. Washington. That's a cool idea. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's just a matter impossible... of like the, the invisible war between good and evil that's always happening. Because I mean, it, when Karis comes to see Reagan... She says, oh, what a wonderful day for an exorcism. You know, I fucking love that line. Everybody does. It's great. It's like, w- wouldn't you hate an exorcism? It would It would drive you out of Reagan. She goes, no, it would bring, bring us, us together. together. He goes, who? You and Reagan? She goes, no, you and us. Which is what happens at the end of the movie. Oh. They have an exorcism. And it, they go into Father Karras and they take him down. Hmm. And that medallion. I bet going into a priest, though, and killing those. a priest is like probably like extra points in hell. Like on the on the big scoreboard. Like, all right, Chuck, you got five points on the board. You're ahead of Steve, and as we all know, Ricky is just killing us all this quarter. It's just, it's insane. You look over, Ricky's just like sharpening his nails. Like, ah, oh, you know, no big deal. Just like took down a whole missionary. And... I mean, it's not really anything to brag, Ricky. You were right across from a fucking priesthood. Location, location, location. Am I right? Like a chorus of real estate agents and lawyers like, uh. I do want to talk about the medical stuff, but I also wanted to ask you, what do you think about the scene where the church is vandalized? It's very brief. Yeah. Do we think Reagan did that? Is that what we're supposed to assume? Or is it just supposed to be the catalyst that gets the um, detective asking questions and that's kind of what gets him to go see Karis after the death on the stairs i've always had uh, a hard time with that scene because i don't quite know what happened i Did always somebody forget just about it come in and put paper mache horns yeah i think it's from the set like i think it's from the film set oh well that that may, maybe that makes sense because um they're filming very close to where his office is like mm-hmm. the university they're filming at is very close to the seminary i guess uh because that's how she originally sees father Karras. she like, walks she's, through there yeah she's aware of him she sees him walking around like who is that that dark-haired fellow who's always brooding and i love how they reveal how his mom died in that scene i know we're I jumping all over the place don't I fucking love it. Okay. It's confusing, but it's great. Okay, so that's what I don't like. Uh, I don't like that it's confusing. I feel like you, you want to rewind it. You want to be like, what did I miss? Like, what the fuck? Yeah, like the, how that moves is awesome. But like, what bothers me about it is that we go to, we have this awful scene where he goes to see his mom in that, yeah. that, that institute, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and you're like, does she die in there? 
Well, he says that, oh, yeah, you know, she died at home, and uh, apparently she'd been dead for a few days before anybody found her, and he's really beat up about it. Like, so he got her out of there? Like a good son? He got her out of there and back to her house? I think it was maybe just like that scene got filmed before they brought him to the institution. I think they really wanted the sad scene in and that was all they had. Yeah. Oh, what a sad scene. It is really sad. That might be the most unsettling part of the whole movie where like all of these just uh, mentally ill women are just like floating to him. Uh, It's like it's like Dante's Inferno or something. And he's going through like this circle in hell where all of these like lost souls are trying to drag him down into the deeper depths of the water. And he's just got to like fight off of them to get to the other side where his mom is. But she doesn't want to speak to him. (laughs) Oh, it's so sad. Yeah. She's got a horrible brother. Okay, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna jump. <laughs> okay, we are gonna jump. jump. I don't I don't know about the vandalism scene. I've always I, I'm never actually a hundred percent sure what I'm looking at. Like it if it's like a paper mache vandalism. In my mind, it's almost like something pierced the statue from the other side. I don't know. I think it's just supposed to sexualize it. Like it's got boobs and uh, and there's like a cone on the dick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's like the Pazuzu cone statue, right? Because the oh. Pazuzu statue I think has like a snake wrapped around its waist that looks like a dick. I don't know. It's pretty crude. <laughs> it is pretty crude. We only see and it for like vulgar. half a second. You know, I don't know if that's 100%. I don't know if that's in the original version either. Like, I'm just basing this off, like, things that I've heard as a child. Like, oh, that's, this wasn't in it and this wasn't in it. Because if there's one thing kids love, it's 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 knowing, like, oh, all the crazy scenes that were added in. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the, the last scenes that I wanted to talk about is the, whatever the medical, the main medical test that they do on her the like three part MRI machine. I think it's like an electrocardiogram or something like that. Um, Now I read, I read this, that um, this was the scene that caused the most like walkouts and barfing and fainting and stuff because of the medical aspect where they do the, um, they tap the vein in her oh, neck. Oh, really? And there's all that, that blood looks really spurting. Good. That does look so good. Looks great. The blood spurting is like, Gross. Well, also, like, if you see it, uh, some of it splashes up onto her face, too. Like, just the littlest bit. Like, it looks so real. And it's it's just, like, a clever angle and just, like, a good amount of pumping on that uh, that blood tube. It looks great. Yeah, and the the act of them funneling that uh, wire into it, like... Yeah, to open the vein up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. like, it. well, I think they're, they're putting, like, contrast in the blood, and I think they're, like, setting that up. Like, a contrast material for the yeah, x-ray yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, so that way they can actually see the... Um, but those moments are so jarring and they they're a different kind of horror than the supernatural spiritual horror of the film and everybody's gone in to see this sold on this supernatural horror and then it's like oh right i'm afraid of death this is because i'm afraid of death and this is in in this day and age like this is what death looks like before it happens that's what it actually looks like good point you know what i mean it's doctors pricking open your veins and getting all these scary tests and stuff like yeah that that's your hallmark card to death guys like (laughs) welcome to it yeah that's that's why i think it's the fucking scariest part of the movie yeah and like the the sound design i suppose uh, in in those scenes is also brilliant because this movie is so quiet and then all of a sudden it's like yeah i would say the loudest parts of this whole movie are are in those medical sequences that well, well mris actually sound like that they're fucking scary yeah um i had one once i was all right with it where did you have it on? Your brain? Yeah, I had my brain. Yeah. Because yeah. we thought that I might be epileptic. 
I went in at like 5 a.m. to go get an MRI. And I'm pretty sure one of the things they said was don't fall asleep. I'm almost positive I fell asleep. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how you could have fallen asleep. I I can fall asleep anywhere. It's we've proven it. (laughs) It just it happens. I think I've had like 10 MRIs. I think I might have just, I don't know, entered like a flow state. Like I think I just got (laughs) hypnotized by it. 10 MRIs, though. That's a lot of MRIs. Yeah, brain, arm, chest, all of them. All of it. (laughs) Um, Almost filled out that MRI passport. I got a free one. (laughs) I got a free one. Actually, they were all free. Because this is Canada. I mean, this is not free, but you just don't see the bill. It's still hella expensive. It's actually pretty cool, though. I mean, you have to pay for it. In the States, you actually can plug your headphones in, I heard. Yeah, and that you can, sounds like, listen great. to music and stuff. I remember being so jealous because my uncle got in a car accident and he had to do an MRI and he got to listen to music. That's great. What do you think your uncle listened to in Alabama? Gospel. Gospel music? Oh, I just I just I just need to hear that Boys to Men soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Boys to Men has done a gospel album. I did an EKG once. I think I did an ECG and an EKG. I got a stupid photo of it on my Instagram. I got like a thousand of these stupid little wires attached to my head. It looked great. Um, I made the nurse take a photo. Like the photo that I that I posted on Instagram. I think it's literally the first photo I posted on Instagram. I made the nurse take it. And she just like <laughs> rolled her eyes at me the whole time. And I was just like, could you, could you take just one more in case the angle's not right? <laughs> and this is like, I don't know, 10 years ago at this point. So I, I don't think Instagram was as big. I definitely know Instagram wasn't as big as it is now. But even then, she just she just hated it. <laughs> Are there any other moments in the movie that you want to talk about that we did not mention? Uh, that's really hard. I mean, I think if we put a list of moments in the movie next to a list of moments that we actually talked about, I know. there is a huge difference. But uh, let's at least talk. Oh, you know what? I know. Ex- I, I do know one thing I want to talk about, but I think maybe we should devote a portion of the movie to the exorcism. <laughs> we did. We mentioned it. We, we, we move around it, in and around it. Oh, God, Max von Sydow is so goddamn good in this movie. He's insane. But uh, I want to talk about that crucifix. What do we think about this? This is going to be your, the same point you had about the necklace, John. Yeah, I think there <laughs> there are a turn. Like there are there are forces of good at work so much as there are forces of bad at work in this movie. Uh, Mom finds a crucifix under her pillow. Nobody in the house admits to having put it there. Uh, and then the police officer shows up and he makes her drink like eight cups of tea. Um, <laughs> and, and give her an auto, give him an autograph on the back of a business card. I love that he loves movies. Yeah, the, everybody in this movie has like fun little quirks. That guy is obsessed with film too. So she puts the she puts the cross down on the coffee table. A great piece of continuity, by the way. We, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so she puts it down on the coffee table. We see that that happens. They have their big conversation, and then after he leaves, there's some commotion upstairs. And when she goes up, that's where we have the infamous scene where she's stabbing herself in the crotch with it and uh that looks so fucking horrible by the way oh it's it, good god there's blood everywhere like ugh. anyway either one of the house staff put that crucifix there and then foolishly took it from the coffee table nightstand whatever and brought it back upstairs and slipped it under her pillow where it gave her the ability where she had the ability to hurt herself with it uh or the Holy Ghost came. Now, now that I'm saying this, it sounds preposterous, but, um, but yeah, like the cross just appeared there and then was placed back there. Not any more ludicrous than a demon taking a little girl's body, but, uh, but yeah, what if, uh, the Holy Spirit, quote unquote, 
is what put it there. And I think that's also why maybe that demon would have such a reaction to the crucifix showing back up. Because it's it's another moment. Maybe a too vulgar display of power for these good forces. Uh, and then she really lets them have it by by displaying it's this like horrible image. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I always just thought of it as like a mystery. And then I just didn't think about it anymore. <laughs> I don't know that this movie would have big mysteries like that that would that would not get resolved. Like mm-hmm. I think it at least this time around it seemed uh very intentional and so intentional that I think there would have been an answer for it, especially in a director's cut. Like if there if there was any more to that story, there's a pretty good chance it would have come up at some point. Mm-hmm. Another thing I noticed this watch that I don't know if I ever noticed before, the infamous head turnaround scene. Mm. And the voice she's doing is the guy that died. Is it? Is it Burke? I think it is. And I think the head turning around is supposed to signify... Becoming a different person? No. Nope. That's what happened in the room. Oh, shit. Before he fell out the window. That's why the cop comes knocking because the cop says that how far turned around his neck was was impossible from just a fall and he thinks he was murdered first. And then push down the stairs. I love that scene where he's talking with. I think that's her admitting. Yeah, I think you're right. That she did it. Because that's why at one point. Do you know what she did? Your daughter? Yeah. Yeah, Um, Yeah, she murdered Burke. I think that gives Chris the final, like, oh, fuck, she did it. When she tells Father Karras to get him to do the exorcism. Yeah. Yeah. Right? She definitely. I never noticed that before. I just thought it was a spook, right? Yeah. Oh, man. What a good movie. (laughs) What a good movie. Guys, have you seen The Exorcist? Like, holy shit. The levitation is fucking seamless. Like, watching the Reagan lift up, it's just so fucking perfect. And the shadows are great. And, like, the bed just covered in, um, just taped and wrapped in cloth and towels and stuff. Like, that's fucking cool. Yeah, it's cool little details. Like, she's clearly, she's hurt herself on everything she possibly could, right? Well, and the bed's rattling and stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. eh. So good. Yeah, at this point, we're just going to keep listing off stuff that we think is great. Yeah. But, uh... I do have a minor scene, though, I wanted to mention. So I think yeah. one of my favorite moments in this movie, it's just revealing of character. Mm-hmm. When Chris is in the other room with the babysitter, and she's trying to call the dad collect in Rome. Mm. And Reagan's listening from her room down the hall. Yeah. It's clearly still her birthday. And Chris is just livid because he didn't call her. Yeah. But you learn so much in that scene. So you learn that dad's not dead, that mom's divorcing dad. But also, I think dad is pretty famous himself and he's pretty notorious because he's in Rome. Mm -hmm. And he's... I think she mentions that he's on set. I can't really remember. I think it comes up at some point. But you learn so much in that scene because before that, we only have the, the birthday scene. And dad is mentioned in passing, so you don't really know anything about the relationship, only that he's not really in the picture anymore. Yeah. And mom even says, like, oh, I'll always love your daddy. Yeah. And like that's that's another great thing, too. Like, I think their relationship is pretty tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, in maybe any other movie, it would be that Reagan would is... question. Yeah, Reagan's neglected because mom is famous and she's always on set. But, like, she literally never works Sundays. I mean, maybe that's standard. But um, she never works Sundays. She spends as much time as she can with, with Reagan. She's constantly interested in what she has to do. And she doesn't badmouth her shitty dad in front of her. Mm-hmm. The only time that she ever gets any of that is because she's screaming from down the hall. But I guess she assumes that Reagan's not around and can't hear it. Yeah, but it's because she's livid because he's not even calling her on her fucking birthday. Right? What a prick. Yeah. (laughs) 
So what's your score? Four out of four. Yeah, it's a four out of four. Yeah, I love watching this movie. There's, I always forget the whole middle of the film. So every yeah. time I watch, it's like the first time again. All of the medical stuff. Yep. And um, yeah. Chris's character is great. She's such an interesting woman to watch. And yeah. she's just watching her try to be the best mother she can with this like extenuating circumstance is always insane. Yeah, she, like the way she breaks down is so... Not even, not even just believable, but like you really sympathize with this woman when it's happening. Yeah, because she and rough. she's not always kind. Like she's at the end of her wits, so sometimes she's yelling at priests, and you're just like, you tell them. Yeah, like they don't know what you've been through, and like especially when, the doctors. Yeah, too. when the doctors are telling her like, get a witch doctor. <laughs> and she's like, what fucking? I'm at a table with twelve fucking PhDs, and like, oh, it's good, great. I think the moment I realized that this movie was the real deal was when and like that that I really appreciated it was when I wasn't annoyed at the end with them saying the power of Christ compels you over and over and 27 over. times yeah the first time when you're doing that checklist watch where you're looking for all the things like ah here we go the power of Christ compels you and it and the power again and again and and I'm running out of spaces for check marks you get a, you get annoyed by it in every subsequent watch like I've I get hypnotized by that scene. Like, I'm in that scene. I'm with them at that moment, and I'm not annoyed at it whatsoever. It's great. The repetition's perfect. It's cool, I see. Yeah, and I think in terms of watching it through Father Karras' eyes, which I do more and more every time I watch the exorcism bit, mm. watching his level of conviction with um, yeah, the different he's passages doubtful. Yeah, he's pretty being doubtful read and first. stuff. And, and he's, I think he's afraid too. Like he's more worried about what Reagan's doing than like his lines in the, the rites of exorcism. Okay, sorry. One thing that happens like right there, which I think really sums up the difference between those two people that I, I gotta, I really gotta mention before we go is when Father Marin finally shows up. And he's like, okay, so uh, I'm going to give you a breakdown on uh, on everything that's happened up until this point. And he's like, why? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And he's just like, I really think that it would, it would help. Like, we've, we've got these different personas. There is no different. Per- there is only one persona. <laughs> just like, it is just business for Father Mare. And he's like, it doesn't matter. It's all a smoke screen. I don't want to hear any of it. Let's just go in there and get our fucking jobs done. And well, I think it's better, too. The more connections he makes with that girl and the more connections he makes with Father Karras, it's just more things for the for the yeah, demon to work with. Yeah, they're strengthening the demon. Yeah, like they're making this big mythology. They're increasing its power. For him, it's just like, nope, not going to communicate with it, not going to do shit with it. I'm not even going to look at it in the eye if I don't have to. That doesn't mean in the end. I, I, I'm, I'm always sad when he dies, but he was so old. So <laughs> frail. And he spent too much time in the goddamn desert. <laughs> too much sun guys don't don't even bother with it just stay out of the direct sunlight didn't even have a donkey <laughs> long story short very long story short <laughs> we love this movie indeed moving on let's talk about another academy award-winning horror film 1991's silence of the lambs you spook easily starling not yet sir he's past the others the last cell, I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, spins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, She'll have to match wits. 
I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lecter's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Directed by Jonathan Demi, Silence of the Lambs is currently sitting at an 8.6 out of 10 on IMDb, 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, another 4 out of 4 from Roger Ebert, 4.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd, and like The Exorcist, it was nominated for a ton of Academy Awards, but took home Best Picture, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Wow. It was a sweep. I'm surprised The Exorcist didn't win more. I thought it won way more. It was nominated for a whole ton. Mm. Won two Oscars. So this is another one of those movies that I knew of before I saw it because it came out when I was two. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, it's really funny. There's this weird memory I have we had like our all of our VHS in this shelf in the basement, but it had a like a gate that you had to open. Like it had a door, but it was like a fence door. You could put your fingers through it. Weird. And before I even knew what movies were, like when when you know when you're that age, like I don't know, three or younger, where the idea of like a tape with a narrative thing that you put in another thing, and, like I thought you just turned the TV on and you watched whatever was yelling at you like the cartoons or the sesame street or whatever yeah and i used to take I, I would spend hours just sitting at this thing and like playing with the gate and i would open it and i would look at the tapes just to look at them just to like mm, what is this <laughs> one i remember dances with wolves and i really fucking wanted to watch it because i thought it was about wolves <laughs> <laughs> and i remember the silence of the lambs cover that's great with the creepy ass yeah. i thought it was a bumblebee uh, the moth with mm-hmm. the the face, yeah, with the skull, like the um, yeah, like the dolly face, yeah, uh, and that is like so burned in my mind that when I finally got to the age where it was just like, oh, that's a poster for a movie, it like flooded back to me that like, oh, I used to just spend hours of my infancy just like staring, staring at, at this it. horror cover. That's really cool. Yeah, I remember seeing this a lot. The VHS, my. I'm sure my parents owned a copy of it, but even seeing it at the like the rental store, I remember thinking that it might be something I'd like. Silence of the Lambs is not a horror title. That's what I'm saying. Every time I looked, I'm like, maybe this is a movie for. Can nah. I watch this one? Like, yeah. no. In my brain, I was like, oh, this will be like Dances with Wolves, and it'll be nothing <laughs> like I think it is. I have no. I still don't know what Dances with Wolves is, but I think it's about a guy who goes to live with Native Americans. I don't know. And they dance. Do they dance? They're dancing on the cover, aren't they? No, it's just wolves on the cover. Well, in my house, we had a cover <laughs> with Kevin Costner. Either that or I've just made that up. <laughs> that's so funny, though, that you would just stare at it forever. Yeah, but that's my introduction to Sound of the Lambs. I definitely stared at that cover more hours than I've spent watching the movie. <laughs> that's nuts. Yeah, just weird, weird kid shit. I, we I, didn't have cell phones back then, you know, at the age of two. <laughs> 
I I would say this movie does better than The Exorcist or Psycho or something uh, in being spoiled by pop culture. I I, I think pop culture wise, you have uh, Hello Clarice, yeah, which is fake because he doesn't say hello, right? Doesn't, he doesn't even not say Hello Clarice. I don't, I don't remember where the actual. I quote just is. Saw, saw the movie yesterday. I have no idea. No, I got an idea. Yeah, so uh, he says Hello Clarice, uh, Faba Beans and Chianti, and it puts. <laughs> Yeah, it puts the lotion on the skin and it gets the hose again. Like mm-hmm. those those are basically it. I think. Like I think that's all that was really spoiled for me before I really watched it. I mean, I probably heard about the dance scene. Mm. But that's kind of about it. Like I don't know how much else like when I watched this movie for the first time, like it's got some twists and turns with Hannibal Lecter that I definitely didn't see coming that I was like, "Holy shit, I did I, I never knew that this movie would do this." So I I found it a more surprising watch the first time around than something like The Exorcist. Yeah, um, that's a really good point, too, because there's so much about this movie that's like a cop procedural. Oh, yeah. And or like a detective story. And it it goes in and out of like these different types of film. Like when you're watching Clarice's interactions with Hannibal Lecter, it's solely to learn who Hannibal Lecter is. Mm -hmm. We're watching it. For just the the creep out factor of how this like eloquent man could eat people <laughs> you know what i mean like you just watch that whole those scenes to just be like abhorred by him mm-hmm. and then you have the crime mystery and this story about this like young woman in a man's world kind of thing and then there's like the horror of it of this man that's kidnapping girls and what he does to them and trying to figure out what that is there are a lot of moving parts in this movie. Mm-hmm. So many that you, in a regular movie, this would be too much to juggle. Mm-hmm. One of them would be, a, one of them would bring the entire movie down, but so expertly done. And like, I don't know who to thank for it. Like all the performances are incredible. Like the source material is great. The script is amazing. Like obviously Jonathan Demi knew what the fuck he was doing. It's, a, it's an incredible movie. Yeah. I think in any other hands, Hannibal Lecter would have to be cut from this film. But if you think about Hannibal's character, him helping Clarice to solve this other murder doesn't really make sense because our our disbelief is already extended to the very end. And when when she starts going on these trips and she starts acting like uh, she's already a special agent doing all of these like pet projects for her boss. So that's already like, why is she being involved in this? And so you kind of chalk it up to like, oh, he's just like her pet project or Mm -hmm. or whatever. But then we're involving Hannibal Lecter to help solve this murder, and and it's it and seems the key, she becomes his pet project now almost. Yeah, and it seems very thin. They really make it work in this movie, and I, I can't even explain how they make it work. I think you're so interested in Anthony Hopkins' performance that you don't even care why he's in the movie. But I mean, when you think about it, think about it, it doesn't really make sense. Like both things are seem really extreme for the sake of having these these two characters collide, like the lamb and the lion. Yeah. Um, but when you're watching it, you don't care. And I think that's, no. that's crazy. All of the stuff with Hannibal escaping and like, that doesn't seem like it belongs to this movie. No. Him talking to the Senator and then he's in this like crazy suicide squad cage and like, yeah, <laughs> it's, I always forget about that scene. I'm like, oh yeah, he fucking breaks out. Right. He's not just in that glass box the whole movie. And it's, uh, yeah, it, you, you would expect him to be back in that glass box by the end of the movie. Or to never leave it. And that's kind of one of the things that's good about uh, Red Dragon, at least a little bit. Because 
it's pre Silence of the Lambs, and he is mostly in that that uh, that glass cage the whole movie, and you get it. You get a look at what he can do from within that glass cage still. It's pretty great. Mm. Yeah, you should watch it. Have you, You've seen it, right? I think you've tried to make me watch the other movies. I'm like, I just don't have interest. I just want it to be Anthony Hopkins. Ray Fiennes. And, uh, Ralph Fiennes, however you want to pronounce it. Voldemort is the villain in Red Dragon. Boom. Now all of a sudden we're watching it, right? Jodie Foster. Yeah, she's not in it. We, we swap out Jodie Foster for... Uh... Julian Moore, right? No, we swap out Jodie Foster for an Edward Norton. It's a completely different character. Oh. Completely different movie. It's it's essentially a remake of Manhunter. But yeah, it's it's a prequel. It's before he meets Jodie Foster. So you you gotta know that at the end of the movie, it's like, there's some young agent here to see you, Hannibal. Blah, 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 blah. And you're like, hmm, how interesting. And you're like, no, oh, fuck this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I remember hearing uh, like on Reddit or something that... At some point in the books, like Clarice and Hannibal, like fall in love and stuff. And it's I don't. Just, so I, somebody broke this news to me too on Twitter, and I don't know if they fall in love, but they do get married at the end of Hannibal. I don't know why. So I'm just gonna stay in my Silence of the Lambs world. And I'm I just know. Gonna... I, I will say Red Dragon's good, and so I'll, I'll come back to why I think Red Dragon's a good movie later. Um, but I don't want to move too far away from you talking about the dynamic between. Was it Jack Pierce, I think? Her FBI boss and Clarice Starling and her being like his pet project. Because you're right. Like, that's that's strange. That's something that happens in a book for no reason. Like, yeah, sure. She's the top of her class. She's the greatest student that they have. And they need somebody with a good mind to go talk to Hannibal Lecter. That's a, that's a book premise. That doesn't happen in the real world. Mm-hmm. I think they're also dangling her in front of Han- like Hannibal like a mouse to a cat. Yeah. They and then need... they don't have to do it themselves. Well, and they need like this innocent, naive thing to go and stand in front of him because they need something for him to want to toy with yeah. to entertain what they want him to do. Which just ends up being the smartest fucking decision ever because Hannibal's encountered one of his w- victims 10 years ago before he was in jail. Yeah. Which is like another crazy coincidence that I just like don't care about because this movie's good. I wonder if it's something that I don't... You know what? I I, I was going to say that I, I wonder if that's something that I find like super interesting because of the television show Hannibal. But I always found this plot point great before that show existed or before I watched that show. The idea that Hannibal loves these complex minds and what's more complex than some sort of serial killer or some crazy person and trying to figure out what makes them who they are and why they do the things they do. He's he's really interested in the metamorphosis of people. So it's almost like I'd love to find out what else he has in that self-storage locker. Holy shit. It's probably <laughs> just like a collection of, of first wave mutations of all of these different serial killers. Because that's what that head is. That head is the first kill of Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. Um Really interesting, too, that his first kill, he makes his victim look like a woman. Like, he kills this guy and dresses him up like a woman um, because I guess he figures that's what he wants to do. He doesn't realize yet that he wants to himself become a woman. But even now, he says, like, Hannibal says that he's not a real, um, like, trans person. No, yeah. He just has this feeling of, like, not belonging or not knowing what he is. And so he's he's trying somebody else on for size. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like that that's what's great about it that he doesn't need this. He doesn't even necessarily want it. And you really see that in that lotion scene where like he's he's trying to remain prim and proper 
He's 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 got his persona on. This is who I am to become. Mm-hmm. And b- as soon as it's not going his way, he just goes back to being his angry self. Like, put the fucking lotion in the basket. Like, <laughs> I love that scene. Well, because he's like a hillbilly. Like, and when he's when he's like faking his broken arm, like um, Ted Bundy or whatever, yeah, and trying to get her to push the couch, and he's like, so you'd say you're like um, about size fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> What a crazy question. Like that and She's like, "What?" and then he beats her up. <laughs> oh man, that scene is so stressful because it plays out in such a real life way. Like you watch it, I mean like knowing that Ted Bundy's a real guy and like he would do this kind of shit. Like Oh, I started watching the Ted Bundy tapes today and, yeah. I, and there was a diagram of one of the girls that he Ooh. um he took and she was at the beach and she walked like 30 paces with her friend to the like the beach washroom. Yeah. And while her friend was in the washroom, Ted Bundy came and like with his broken arm or whatever and like asked for help at the car and she went with him and she was never seen again. And like just seeing the distance, she was like 10 paces from the bathroom where people were yeah. and like 20 paces from her towel on the beach. And, like, well, that's the, and, like, tourists, that's the thing. Like, this girl oh, was the middle of the 10, day. 10 paces from her house. She mm-hmm. was coming home for the day. She had groceries in her arms, right? Mm-hmm. And like it's that moment or that place where they felt safe. So there was nothing to be worried about. There's nothing. To, there's nothing wrong or scary about going to help a guy with his car in broad daylight, or this other guy put some furniture in the back of his car. Like clearly, he's taking it from the garbage. She's just poor. There's nothing wrong with him. And he just like he just really cleverly gets her to go into the car, and then just hits her over the head. It's a rough scene. But you're right. Like all of the plot points in this movie are huge. Huge stretches. Mm-hmm. Huge they're, stretches. They're big, big coincidences. And they work so fucking well. Yeah, but you just don't care. Because everybody's so well done. <laughs> like, oh, it's great. Um, Jodie Foster's fucking amazing in this movie. You know you know who's great? Like, super great at what he does. But what he does is fucking awful. Is uh, the psychiatrist who uh, is basically... Like the keeper of yeah, Hannibal. Yeah, the keeper of Hannibal. He is a horrible human being, but he plays that part so damn well. He is well. a great slime ball. Yeah, he's, oh, he's the definition of slime ball. I love how he's like, he's he's trying to be great, and oh, aren't I so awesome, and how long are you in Baltimore? Will you be here overnight? She's like, I really just want to get to work. He's like, all right, well, it was worth a try then, basically. <laughs> like, let's get to work. <laughs> he he kind of drops the politeness. Oh, man. I, I do love the where he's walking her in to see Hannibal. And we don't know. Unfortunately, you know, this is lost on us because we know about Hannibal Lecter. We know exactly who he is, what he's done before we see the movie because of pop culture. Fucking pop culture. <laughs> How dare you. But none of that information is revealed. Like, we don't even really know that he's a cannibal until, until she like, says it. He didn't keep trophies. And she says, no, you ate yours. Yeah. <laughs> Don't try and throw on that accent. <laughs> you can't just pick it up here and there. That was not it. Well, no, obviously. <laughs> that was me doing Hannibal picking it up here and there. I love when he picks up her accent just like for little touches um, and kind of spits it back. Oh, at like her. getting her into the lamb story? Even before that, just in that first interaction, mm-hmm. like in, in their little back and forth, uh, he'll occasionally just like in one word or two put a little southern twang on it. Yeah, so let's talk about that first interaction because that is the tensest fucking scene ever. And I thought you were going to get onto it when you were saying that, like, it was ruined for us having known it because when she walks into view of him and he's just standing there in the middle of his cell waiting with perfect posture for her, smiling like an asshole, you're just like, (laughs) fuck 
That's cool. <laughs> and it's like he he could see her through the bricks. Yes. He was, his eyes were already tracking her. Like a lion and his prey. What what do you got to say about this? Scene? I had something and I forgot. Okay. <laughs> You're just staring at me. I can see it. He is like a he is like a big cat in this whole scene and and like he's really commanding the whole time. Uh, he makes her sit down. He's uh I think he's trying to be intimidating. Like I think he's oh, yeah, trying yeah, 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 yeah. to live up to this expectation of him being this terrifying person because it's almost like the beginning Hannibal is almost overacted. Mm. he's extra sly and extra smart and extra scary. Well, I think it's because he also knows that she's been fed a bunch of information from that psychiatrist. So why not go from that position of she's already scared of me mm-hmm. and work from there down Yeah. versus trying to like pedal back from it. And when he's dissecting her and talking about how he can tell where her accent's actually from, that she's masked and that she's wearing cheap shoes, but she's got an expensive handbag and that she's not wearing the fucking perfume that she normally wears and you're just like oh my god that is the scariest moment yeah i could have revealed that better on this podcast but i didn't it's no big deal it's it's great because like he... sometimes you are layered to tops but not today yeah <laughs> i said that like a french person you sure did that's okay <laughs> so yeah he, he tears her down like he he really he gives a psychological profile of her just by looking at her and then also kind of describes her as though she's a dish like, he, he can do both of those things because he is both of those people. And then immediately asks to see the Buffalo Bill file case. Like, you know, without a doubt, that he would be able to say, oh, I know exactly who this is. Whether or not he met them. He could give them that perfect psychological profile. And she didn't even know she was there to get him to do the Buffalo Bill file. I think she had a suspicion. I don't think so. No? You don't think that? I think she thought she was, like prize pig going to like Mm. do this questionnaire and getting the opportunity to meet this really interesting killer because she was pissed at him remember in the car when they were going to see the body that they found she was pissed because she would have liked to have been fully informed when she Mm. met him the first time yeah and he says that he would have smelt it on her yeah he eventually would have turned to stone because he would have just like played this hard game with her versus being this thing that he could play with and toy with and have fun with i guess right mm-hmm. but even when she goes to see uh jack pierce at the beginning of the movie she says this is about buffalo bill when mm-hmm. he when he asks her to go he talk doesn't to answer him. though like he totally yeah. ignores the question yeah that's true and because uh because multiple migs throws some gross stuff <laughs> <laughs> at uh at clarice hannibal calls her back and basically says like See, you said that when we were watching it, and I never got that. I thought it was just part of the chaos. Well, I think there is a lot of chaos happening, and I don't think you necessarily know what's going on because people are screaming. Uh, somebody has just thrown semen in her face. Um, and Anthony Hopkins is talking fast he and loud. He calls her back, and he's like at the edge of his mirror and shouting at her. Yeah, and at this point, she's closer than she's ever even supposed to be to him. But I think there's just so much going on there, like, your brain can't really process it. Mm-hmm. But uh, he does say that, like, what he did is detestable, and I hate it, and, you know, because of that, I'm going to give you this little piece of the puzzle. Now, go on, fly, fly! He gives her information, he's, she's like, what is this for? And he's like, to get you up the ladder, it's what you want. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's so detestable to him that what he did... No, it's because it's talking about getting up the ladder toward Bill, up the ladder in her career. Like, he's giving her something that is leverage mm. against the people that sent her there and also 
the killer that they're pursuing. Mm-hmm. Like, he definitely is pretty certain Buffalo Bill is the killer. Like, I think he knows who Buffalo Bill is probably right away, or at least has really good suspicions. I don't think he knows who he is at all. I think he's just really good at psychologically profiling. I don't know that he would have sent her to that self-storage facility, though, if he wasn't certain about Buffalo Bill. And I think maybe just, like, he has a hunch. I think he can know Buffalo Bill's work without knowing who the person is that Buffalo Bill is. Like, I think he can know that this was the first kill of Buffalo Bill. Like, this is the first kill of this serial killer that's doing this now. Yeah. Without knowing who Buffalo Bill is. Because it's obviously in the same Washington area, right? Yeah. It's Washington? I think it's Washington. Uh, Baltimore. Baltimore. Um, Or is it? He's in Baltimore. I think it's Washington. I think you're right. But I think uh, what he's doing there too, though, in saying that the, the clue he gives her to get up the ladder is what I think makes her go to that storage facility alone. Because otherwise she would take that anagram, solve it, and she should be giving that to the real police. Good point. She's a student. I, from what I understand, though, um, they know that she's there. I'm sure it's her friend at the, the school or something. Oh, you mean the business card that she gives the landlord? Yeah. Yeah, all right. That's a good point. She says it's for the Baltimore office. My guess would be, hey, uh, Hannibal said this. I'm going to go follow up on it. And they're like, yeah, sounds whatever. Like, as, <laughs> as far as they're concerned, yeah, it doesn't lead us directly to where Buffalo Bill. Sure, pursue your little thread, whatever. Mm. They don't care. But meanwhile, like, she's actually paying attention and getting closer and closer to everything. Yeah, I just don't think that she would be permitted to be doing that kind of investigative. If they knew exactly what she was looking for, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the sequence where they go to take photos of the newest body that's shown up. Mm-hmm. That is the pinnacle of a... Uh... That's like character development city. <laughs> oh, hell Yeah. I always forget that we are in a funeral home, and at one point, while Boss Man is over talking to other Boss Man behind closed doors with Outer, that she steps through a door and into a memory. It happens so fluidly, like, you don't even realize necessarily what's happening at first. Mm-hmm. Like, you know her father's dead, or at least maybe you have suspicions of it. I don't think you do it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you don't. I think this is where we first figure it out. But yeah, she starts walking through a funeral and you're wondering why nobody's stopping her because you're She's just a stranger. Right to, yeah, because yeah. you expect to be in that coffin, the girl. And you're like, wait, that's not right. They just found her. That she wouldn't, wouldn't make be, any sense. Yeah. yeah. So then it's like, but then it's a man and then it's a tiny little girl. And you're like, oh, it's little Clarice. A lot of, uh, a lot of low camera angles too in this whole sequence. And I think it's because uh, there's, there is that moment where Jodie Foster, Clarice has to tell a bunch of detectives and state troopers or whoever that are just fbi is here and they have it under control well those guys are just milling around drinking coffee grumbling to each other like they're not filling up the room they're not doing anything yeah like so she has to ask them to leave and they all just kind of like stare at her for a minute and then eventually like all right let's get out of here but like i I love how all of those scenes are shot like everybody it's like they're towering over her which is great because a moment ago she was just a little child too like, that's definitely how she feels a little bit right now, despite the fact that she's being pretty kick-ass. Just... Yeah, but her boss has belittled her and stuff. It's just an icky-feeling scene. Oh, yeah, no, like, the, the whole sequence is pretty rough, but she's doing her best. She's she's tromping on. She's doing okay. Yeah, because then they go in, and I think this is her first experience with a dead body. Yeah. Um, Just because of how apprehensive she is. Mm-hmm. 
Everybody's got to put on that. What do you think is, like, do you think that's just like Vicks VapoRub? Probably. It's probably like industrial strength Vicks VapoRub. <laughs> extra fort. Yeah, extra fort. Yeah, and, and I love the scene too because we don't get a lot of the the gore and violence of the corpse visually. Yeah. It's all dictated by Clarice into the recorder. Mm-hmm. And she does a really good assessment of her. Like, she's able to chalk up pretty quickly that she's not from the small town that she was found in. She's got nail polish. Her ears are pierced a bunch. Yep. Um, She's from town. She's from town. My guess would be town. You're killing me with this accent. <laughs> and it's really good, too. That's the problem. Yeah, she's got uh, she's got glitter nail polish. And uh, they've, they've been torn off. And we don't know it yet, but that girl definitely tried to. They think she's tried to claw her way through something. They don't realize that she's tried to claw her way up a fucking well. And um, fucking great reveal right, later on, right? Where that girl finally, as the flashlight is coming up with the basket, and we see all those bloody marks and a fingernail just, like, embedded into the mortar in one of those stones. Ugh. Woo! Scary. It's a good one. But yeah, yeah, like that that autopsy scene or the coroner scene, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's great because you're right. We don't see anything. It's just all from all from her narration. And mm-hmm. just the sound of that fucking camera going off like a shotgun. I don't know why I like it so much. No, it's good. Just, okay, good. It's yeah. really good. What do you think about the moth? Buffalo Bill is a weird killer (laughs) so he fits the personality of several different types of killers i assume i'm basing this mostly off true crime documentaries yeah so there's a moment in the movie where her boss i think it's in the car also is asking like what is who she thinks like to do a profile like who do you think buffalo bill is and she's talking about how reserved he is and how he's not impulsive and la 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 and he won't stop because he's got a taste for it and and i don't you think she's just describing Hannibal Lecter? Maybe. Like subconsciously. Yeah, maybe. Because I don't match that with Buffalo Bill. Like from my first glimpses of him, he looks like a little scruffy, a little rough around the edges. He looks impulsive to me. Yeah, so Buffalo Bill, uh, you're right. He seems maybe not like super duper impulsive, but crime of opportunity kind of guy, right? Yeah. Like I definitely, like if he couldn't get that girl, he would have gotten another one. He just happened to scope one out. Like I don't know that he really followed her home or anything. I think he probably just like found a spot that was pretty cool and just posted up and waited for a size 14 to come along. I mean, I guess so. Yeah. But he's also uh, like... And the first girl he kills was like his neighbor. So that one's great uh, because, because yeah, that is just somebody that he was obsessed with. He wanted to be her. And yeah, like like Hannibal says later on, like aren't these like desperately random like he's going out to all these different areas in washington and surrounding states or whatever just to make it look random because the first one was right next door Uh, and it's because he saw her every day we covet what we see that's how we all begin um which is what i think makes all of like the head-on shots of people just like staring down the camera work so well because the movie is about looking through a killer's eyes uh, and like what they see and what they covet, I guess. It's mostly just Buffalo Bill, I suppose. Well, like, and Hannibal, I think yeah. he covets Clarice. Yeah. And also, I think it's just for the badassery of Hannibal looking the audience dead in the eye when oh, yeah. he says things because he's so creepy. Yeah. I, you're right, because if, if Hannibal was the only character to look directly in the camera, it would almost be weird. Mm-hmm. Like, why would then you... Then it would be overacted. Like, yeah. okay, so this whole detective story is in favor of, like, us getting to see this really cool killer, mm-hmm. which you kind of... 
I mean, sometimes we watch it just for Hannibal. Sometimes we watch it because we want to watch Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, it depends what you're going for. Tonight, it was an Academy Award winning watch. (laughs) The only scene that's really kind of strange with the head on is where her and her friend are like like really trying to piece this together yeah yeah like maybe maybe it's just that it's a little fast how we get to those conclusions but i think they're also they're on a bit of a timeline they're on a crunch like they know that we are coming up on day three this girl is gonna die Hannibal has just escaped from prison. And as much as she's not necessarily worried about it, it is definitely a sort of Damocles that hangs over her fucking head right now. So, like, there's a lot going on. There's The pressure is there. They need to get this done. Um, but also, that's the, where we really get through to, like, what he covets, what he sees. So it, it does work in those scenes, but it does feel strange. And maybe it's just because it's like exposition dialogue. Mm-hmm. To a degree. It's good. It's not bad whatsoever. But it is, it's got some odd placement in the movie. Yeah, I think it's purely just to make, just to keep consistent. Yeah. What do you think about Hannibal escaping? That's a pretty major sequence for the film while still being kind of like not part of the plot. <laughs> it's bizarre. Uh, it'd be strange. Like, it's a super villain sequence is what kinda, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's the Joker breaking out of whatever prisons there are in whatever. Uh, Arkham Asylum? Yes. Yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's Chekhov's gun, right? Like, there are a ton of things that we're not supposed to give Hannibal. And, like, one, it's because he's totally... Dinner. Gonna, yeah, <laughs> we're not supposed to give him second dinner. Uh, <laughs> Don't feed Hannibal after, after midnight. midnight. Yeah, that was their biggest mistake. Uh, there's plenty of stuff we're not supposed to give Hannibal. Like, one, staples. He's not supposed to have staples in his paper. He's not supposed to have paper clips. He's not supposed to have pens. Uh, and we think part of it's so he doesn't have anything to murder you with. But it's also so he doesn't have any tools to use to escape. So, like, when we establish that at the beginning of the movie, it's 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 so such a good payoff when he finally escapes at the end. Because you know he had that pen. We all know he had that pen. He didn't even need the whole fucking pen, right? He just swallowed the little, uh... Blip. Yeah. The old ink and blip. He really seems at peace with himself. And just, like, so elated when he has beaten that cop to death. Like, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's, it's great. Just like, it's like a wave of endorphins just washes over him as soon as blood hits his face and the classical music is playing. Like, when he snaps back to reality and he hears that the other police officer is trying to escape, he really looks like he was woken from a dream. Like, Anthony Hopkins' performance there is so great. Like, he, it, he literally, like, he really truly looks like somebody who is in a trance Mm -hmm. and also too you would assume that this isn't the style of which he normally kills people like i don't think him to be rash or this is him kind of doing um dirty work self-preservation okay in order to be hannibal these cops need to be disposed of in such a way yeah but that doesn't mean he's not going to take at least some pleasure from it. He hasn't had the opportunity to kill and eat somebody for a while. Yeah. I don't think he stops to eat anybody in this sequence, but because he's got a job to do. He might. I mean, he does like open that guy's guts up and like hang him like an angel, which also- It takes th- a lot of time and he gets a fog machine and he sets it up. <laughs> that is, oh man. <laughs> How he smuggled that fog machine up his butt, I'll never know. But it's in there. Well, yeah, that's true. Like, it is all for show. 
Like, I don't think the hanging people up. No, I don't think he gives a shit. I think it's just no. to scare them. No, I, I think when or he... Or to taunt them or to shock them to the fact that they aren't going to look so closely That's exactly at the other is. elements of the room. That's exactly it. It's it's shock and awe. They're not going to pay attention to this guy who's very clearly wearing someone else's face on the floor. What's really cool in that scene, too, is uh, we really drill in that this is the cop. It comes in, like, the panic and the fear of the other cops who are responding to this That's incident. That's Jim down there. Just talk to him for God's sake. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what am I supposed to say? Like, you just that is fucking Jim Parsons and you hold his goddamn hand. <laughs> and like, yeah, watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is this is methodical. This is like super planned. So that way we are really in it and we are super shocked when he wakes up in the ambulance, just like rips his goddamn face off. Grand mal seizure my butt. Yeah. I love I, I love that. Uh, we discover Hannibal had time to kill and probably eat parts of the paramedics and also a tourist. Like He needed the clothes and money. He needed the clothes and money. There's no way he didn't try and use those defibrillator pads to like cook a spleen, right? Like, wouldn't you? <laughs> just, I mean, if I just ramp this up, it's basically like microwave paddles. Hannibal would not microwave. That's a good point. That's a really good point. So the one thing I did want to talk about is how often RIC messages or posts... Mm-hmm. And how Silence of the Lambs is not considered a horror film. Pfft. Now. Sure, it's, it's, it's template is a thriller. Oh, whatever. This is a fucking horror movie. It, the, it's the same fucking aisle in a small fucking bookshop or yeah. movie shop. Sure. You know what I mean? Yep. Thriller, suspense, horror, they are in the same fucking row. Mm-hmm. It is the corner of the store. The scene, I think, totally sums up the fact that this is indeed horror or does go to horror is when Clarice finally finds Buffalo Bill's lair. She's there alone. She has to face him alone and she's in the basement and he cuts the power and he puts on the night vision goggles. And I wish we could have seen that in the theater. POV style, we are watching him follow her. Yeah. He has a gun in his hand. Oh, yeah. And he is like he doesn't need to an taunt inch her. away from her. No, there's... I think he like he wants her, right? He's coveting he, yeah, her. Yeah, he wants to touch her hair. He yeah. reaches out to her face when she's afraid and looking around, and like we are the eyes of a killer. Like that is the same. Those are the same shots from Michael Myers' mask. Mm-hmm. It is a horror moment. Like oh, that yeah. is terrifying. Yeah. I, I have not met a single person that when this movie comes up, like, oh, Anthony Hopkins, so scary. That fucking night vision scene, though. Oh, nightmare fuel. Everybody says the exact same thing. That That is a horror movie through and through. And it's really cool, too, when she kills him and he's, like, dying with the night vision goggles on. It's just, it's some, there's something fun and steampunky about steampunk-y. it. Steampunky? <laughs> it is a little strange, yeah. Can you imagine, like, the FBI shows up, like, was he wearing those fucking goggles? <laughs> he put those on? And then, like, the fucking dog is in the pit bark and, like, mister! And she's, she's just, really hurt down here! She's just clutching that dog, too, when the cops come and get her. Like, they're bringing her to the ambulance. She's still holding on to her, like, this is my fucking precious. She's gonna <laughs> stay with me, and I don't care what my cat back home thinks. She's mine now. You think she keeps that dog? Maybe. Maybe, right? That dog didn't do anything. Yeah, that dog was a victim. That dog had, um, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. Do you think for that- all we know, the dog was calling police, police, police <laughs> the whole time. 
That's true. Yeah. Do you think the dog actually belonged to him, or do you think the dog was uh, belonged to the lady that used to live in the house? So let's talk about the lady that used to live in the house. Oh, you mean puddle lady? In the tub. Yeah. Is that his mom, or do we think that he was just like, I could live here? That's exactly. And then yeah. I I don't know. I'll just why. bring my expensive moths that I imported. Yeah, so, yeah, like, still, like, he is so many different types of killers. Like, I don't know why he... He's got them in a paper bag. No, it's in a McDonald's bag. <laughs> Come on, guys, time to incubate. I, I wonder if he even understands the symbolism behind the, the moths. moths, right? Like, maybe maybe he just loves them. Because they're beautiful. Yeah, they're but he ugly doesn't... ugly, he... and they become birdie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah I don't know what it is like he he must know what it's what it represents like otherwise he wouldn't have put them in the girls throats yeah like that 100% is like a calling card moment and it's speaking to him becoming somebody which make which is odd because he is like that standard serial killer that you hear about who's just doesn't clean up after himself just like lives in filth mm-hmm. um like he doesn't live like a woman no he doesn't live like a human being right like he's he's just He's so removed from civilization. Like, he's like a wild animal. Mm-hmm. It seems like the, there are the two classifications of killers. There's, like, the super, like, OCD clean person who's very meticulous like with everything life. they do. Yeah, and, like, they just slip into reality. Or they slip into a person's life. They become somebody else. And then there's this other person who's just, like, like super chaotic. And yeah, just... who's, who kills in 60 different states because they're always on the road. Yeah, exactly. Like, like that the, is definitely like that is their, who he looks like. Killing is their life. Yeah. They are the kind of people that would just, like, roll up to a house, kill a woman, and pretend to be her son, I guess, who's now living in the house. For a week until the neighbors start, like, complaining about the smell, and then he gets up and goes to another town. Yeah. Yeah. He had to have been there because he knows that she had the well in the basement. Maybe he discovered the well and he was just like, oh. God damn. All right. <laughs> nice features. Yeah, you're, it's probably right. He was probably just like going from town to town, breaking into houses, killing people so he can just stay there, eat all their food, and uh, and then hop a train and move on to the next place. Yeah. He definitely just uses people up. And then he found a place that was perfect for making his skin suit. It's a gross ass skin suit too, right? <laughs> it is gross. <laughs> but that's a little combination-y too. So it's like he's like um, Ted Bundy meets Ed Gein. Yeah. Yeah. Two people to strive to beat right there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's the Elvis Presley and the Beatles of the serial killer world, basically. (laughs) Um, One other moment that I love in this movie, it's such a small little bit. It's when Clarice is at her graduation ceremony, and in the back we see Jack Pierce. I think his name's Jack Pierce. I've been saying it. You keep saying that. I've been saying it with absolute confidence. I haven't been confident. I just keep saying her boss "Uh because I do not believe you. Boss man (laughs) B.I. Federal boss man. He's just in the back. He's got his arms crossed like, you way to go, kid. And then as soon as she sees that he's there and looks away, he just ducks out of the room. He's gone. And uh, and even at the end, he's like, I'm not too very good at these things, and I don't really stick around for parties, so here's, uh, here's a handshake. You think that's supposed to be like him seeing them as equals now? Or is it just supposed to be like, hey, thanks for all the work. Good luck with your life. Yeah, like, we're, um, we're not offering you a position. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been the point to give her a job, right? She's graduated. She's employable now. Congratulations. She took down a huge serial killer single-handedly. To be fair, Hannibal gives her a nicer send-off. He calls the FBI party room. Yeah. (laughs) Hello, I'd like to speak to Clarice, darling, please. I know she's eating cake. Please interrupt her. It's no surprise they got married in a book, right? Like, they they are the Mulder and Scully. Like, you're always getting, just kiss. Just 
Mm-hmm. I don't. I think it's weird. I don't think it's it should happen. But I don't want to talk about it. I just pretend it doesn't exist. I'm just gonna keep on pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, he wishes her congratulations and basically says like, "Hey, you don't come looking for me. I won't come looking for you." And she's like, "I can't guarantee that, sir." He's like, "Okay, well then, goodbye, Clarice." I'm meeting an old friend for, for dinner. Oh, I thought he said supper. He might say supper. Do you think Hannibal Lecter would say supper or dinner? Dinner. Dinner. I think you're right. Yeah. And he hangs up. And he's got his shitty wig. So delicately. Yeah, but he's, he's got his shitty wig, and but he's, he's got a nice little sunset. Summer suit. suit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little cotton blazer. He's, he's ready <laughs> for some blend. hot. My mistake. My mistake. And she's just hanging there on the other line, like, hey, Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. Doctor. Dr. Lecter. Oh, man. Doctor. Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. Why do we do this? <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. Um. So, what is your rating? Four out of four. Yeah, I think I'm gonna do a four out of four as well. Yep. This is a good rewatch. It is a yeah, a stand-up crime thriller, horror thriller, yeah. and Hannibal's fucking creepy as oh yeah, as all hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great character. Splitting hairs here, but if you had to pick, do you have one that you like more than the other? Ooh. Um, I, I'm giving you an out there. Like you don't have to pick one. I'm going to pick The Exorcist. Yeah? Yeah. The Exorcist is the classic choice. It's just perfect. It's pretty fucking incredible. Yeah. And I find something new in that film every single time I watch it. Yeah. Yeah. That would be my choice as well. I mean, they're both like really good films. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a difference between like 99.9 and 99.99. Yeah, sure. (laughs) But that's just what we thought of the movies. Why don't you let us know which you prefer more, Silence of the Lambs or The Exorcist? What's your favorite Academy Award winning horror? Let us know on Twitter at NOFS Podcast, on Facebook in the Horror Movie Fiend Club group at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS, or over on Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash Nightmare on Film Street. You're welcome, Kim. That's the full URL, that whole thing. Thank you. We are controlling transmission. Have a trouble with a Nightmare on Film Street is brought to you by Baphomet and Co. Small batch soap inspired by horror and the macabre. This week's pick is the Marin and Karis Bar. Inspired by the 1973 film The Exorcist by William Friedkin and based upon the novel by William Peter Blatty. Memories of a young girl at the mercy of evil, the test of faith, and a demon's grip tearing away from a mother's. Get 10% off your order with the code NIGHTMARE at baphomentandco.com. That's 10% off with code NIGHTMARE at baphomentandco. Made by hands, sometimes severed. Want to reach the cool creeps? Advertise with Nightmare on Film Street to get your brand out of the shadows. For more information, head to nofspodcast.com slash advertise. We're going to stick around for a few more minutes and play a game that I've put together. I'm calling it, uh, and the winner is, that's the name of the game. The name of the game is, and the winner is. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to quiz Kim on some horror movies that were nominated and won nominated and or maybe won academy awards we're gonna stretch back though i'm reaching into the depths we're gonna go to the 1930s got a few movies from the 50s and the 60s stuff that she's unfamiliar with this sounds like i'm gonna do a really great job you're gonna do great it's fine and we're gonna find out if kim is the winner oh 
you can get that bonus episode and every other bonus episode we've recorded for these uh, head-to-heads and all of our Drive Home from the Drive-In reviews of current horror movies over at patreon.com slash nightmare on film street. But if you can't support the show right now, we totally understand there are other ways for you to get the word out following us on social media and sharing our posts, as well as leaving a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're able to rate the show, Facebook, whatever. And you might have your review read on a future episode of Nightmare on Film Street. Uh, Just like, here, wait, 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 see if I can find one here. Um, Just like Miss Inky, who says... I may be slightly biased to why I love this podcast, since I share the same name as Kim. Woo! Uh, The head-to-head of two horror movies is well done. I don't always have the patience for a movie, so this is a great alternative. (laughs) Saving time. Saving time. That's 2019. We're all trying to be more productive. I I, I think it's hard to believe that we are more efficient than watching a movie. I guess the episodes are shorter than a movie. But do you get all the plot points? I highly doubt it. Also, I just, uh, just, just another quick review because this one made me laugh when I read it. This is from Mikey Javakian. Uh, this podcast is easily one of my favorites. It makes my boring desk job a lot better. I always have a great time listening. If you have a boring desk job, why not listen to Nightmare on Film Street? Do you remember that one person? Um, and thank you too for writing a review who listens to us from a morgue. Yeah, that was a great review to read. That was a, that was a. That was a strange one. The corpses were the are last just... thing some dead oh, people right? hear before they go in the crematorium. Yeah, Mormium. You... Yep, Morium. But that's it from us this week. We'll be back at you again in two Thursdays from now. Uh, happy Oscars, I guess. If you're watching them, uh, we're gonna be uh, we're probably gonna be watching some horror movies that night. I'm Kim. I'm John. Stay, Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive, just long enough to tell the tale of the nightmare on Film Street. Ow! Help us grow the horde. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Continue this week's conversation on Twitter by following at N-O-F-S Podcast. And as always, more terror can be found lurking on our website, www.nightmareonfilmstreetpodcast.com. Until next week, stay creepy, fiends.